Welcome to episode 31 of the Floss for Science podcast, the podcast about free, libre, and open source software for science. Today, David and I are interviewing Craig Topham and talk about the GNU project and specifically about the family of GNU software licenses. Hi, Craig. Thank you for being with us today. How would you introduce yourself to our listeners? Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me. My name is Craig Topham. I'm a fellow human of planet Earth, and I'm currently the Copyright and Licensing Associate for the Free Software Foundation. What is your role as Copyright Licensing Associate? So I work on the uh, licensing and compliance team for the FSF, and I have quite a few roles in no particular order. One of the things that I do is I review devices for our uh, Respect Your Freedom program, which we highlight and, and uh, certify products that use only fully free software. I spend time answering questions. We answer questions to developers who are developing free software at licensing at fsf.org. So if you have a free software licensing question, uh, we're there to help. I also participate in GPL compliance for software the Free Software Foundation holds copyright on. And we also, on the team, we evaluate licenses for their whether they meet the, our standards of freedom. Did you add other positions within the organization before? I have not. I started with the FSF in November of 2018. Okay. So if you work with licensing and everything, what is your background training? Have you studied something with this respect or how does it come that you work with this licensing stuff? I've always kind of had, you know, an eye out and an ear out with things in the technology world, not particularly focused on licensing, but I, I was aware of it. And they had opened a position in the, the summer of 2018, and I just applied for it and managed to get the position. And in the meantime, I've been spending a lot of time studying the field of particularly copyright law as it affects software licenses. On the scope of things, I'm, I'm fairly new to this space where, where people, others have been in here for you know decades upon decades. But so far, so good. But what was your training before? Are you trained as a software or as a lawyer? Or what is your training before that? Before that, I worked for 12 years for the city of Eugene in Eugene, Oregon as a PC network technician for the city. So supporting, helping a city run basically anywhere from the mayor and city council all the way down to the somebody at front of a computer in the parks and Rec recreation department. How and when did you learn about the concept of free and open source software? Well, I had taken, I started working in the technology field, I guess you can say. In, in 1999, I started working at a call center just because it was of interest to me. And I was aware of, of free software, but I, I wasn't quite aware of the free software movement. So I would read Slashdot and other places and you would hear about it. And I, I guess I knew the concept of it, but I wasn't fully aware of it until 2006 when I got my hands on a copy of the Free Software, Free Society, a selected essays of Richard Stallman. And that really opened my eyes to the existence of the free software movement. I'd like to take an aside to talk about what that meant to me at the time, only because I feel during this discussion, we're going to use the word freedom a lot. And, and I'd like to make it clear to the audience, your listeners, you know, what that means to me. So I feel my, my experience kind of going through life is you, 
you kind of look at the world, you know, growing up and it's one way. And then you kind of start seeing that there's something's not quite right. You know, the kind of inequality and Amazon rainforest burning and all the, you know, these things that are like, you get the hint that something's wrong. And so I, you know, endeavored to find out what was wrong and that that took some time. And then once you kind of get a grip on, you know, you have a, a functional worldview where you have some semblance of what is actually happening, that the next question is, what was I going to do about it? And as just a, you know, a kind of a, just a regular middle of the road person, you, you start thinking about, oh, should I get involved with, you know, animal rights? Should I get involved with politics? There's all these things to, to do. And one of the things I, I noticed at the time is when you decide to get involved, there's a, I can't think of a better way to describe, but a lot of noise for lack of a better word. But when you get involved, it makes this noise makes it difficult to kind of find out what's going on and find out, you know, how to participate effectively. And so when I came across the free software movement and I learned about the basics of free software, where you have the four freedoms, and, and I know we'll get into this, but to me, they, they were very simple and kind of undiluted in the sense that they weren't, they didn't have that noise. It was just like, here's the four freedoms. That's what makes up free software kind of, you can stop there. And, and of course it gets more complicated when, when you get into how free software can exist in the world. And I, I'm looking forward to getting into this on this conversation. But, you know, when I hear the phrase, you know, free software, free society, that made perfect sense. And it, to me, is like, this is what I can do. I'm in the computers. This seems important in the scope of things to make the world a better place. And so when I refer to free software, I really talk about the implications it has on a free society. And so that's, then I really, I looked at that as like, this is how I'm going to kind of participate. That's interesting. I wouldn't quite call it a calling, but it definitely, I was looking for something to do. Mm -hmm. And when I came across free software, I said, oh, this is it. And then I, and what was interesting to me is how I can start to participate in it is just start using and talking about free software. Yeah. It offered a clear path. Yes. Where I engaged from there is, is a totally different story, but that, that's kind of <laughs> how I got started. Okay. And what, when was that about? So that was about 2006. Okay. Around 2000. So in between 2006 and 2018, you slowly evolved to, toward applying to the FSF. <laughs> that, that's correct. Yes. So in, in 2007, I became an associate member, which is, is the kind of the primary way that the FSF stays funded mm -hmm. is through membership uh, contributions. And so that, that would be when I really, I guess, like dip my toes in, into the, into this world. So. This episode of Floss for Science is edited by CastUp, a startup that provides professional editing services starting at just 40 cents per published minute. If you're a podcaster or someone who's looking to start a podcast, go to usecastup.com and check out how CastUp can help you succeed. That's U-S-E-C-A-S-T-U-P.com. CastUp helping podcasters take over the world. So how much do you have to pay for the membership fee? The membership's only $10 a month, and it's $5 a month for students. Most folks just pay like, you know, pay for a year. So it's only $120 for a year. Like I said, $10 a month. It's not much. And there's a few benefits, but it's more about just, you know, giving to the cause and what we do with the FSF. 
And if I'm not mistaken, there's also some stores where you can buy and have a percentage of your funds sent to FSF or there's a credit card or there was something along those lines. I do remember reading about that. That was certainly before my time. But yeah, there was some sort of credit card, but I don't remember the specifics of it. Other benefits, you know, you get free entry to our Libra Planet Conference, which we host every year. Well, we did host every year until recent (laughs) events. But, and yeah, like you get some, you get email aliases if you wanted to have an at fsf.org address. Like recently, one of the benefits that we extended to our members is all members get a free access to our Jitsi server that we had set up. Oh, nice. And that seems to be pretty popular, you know, given everybody's doing the remote thing. It's just like, mm-hmm. here's a way to do the remote thing in freedom. Yeah. So, yeah, but it's mostly about supporting the organization than than the perks. Yes. It's more of philosoph- yes, for the most philosophical stuff. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like when we just got done with our fundraiser and, and like some of the previous fundraisers, you know, you have like fun little gifts, you know, for price tiers. And to me, it's not about the gift. It really is, no. you know, that you're contributing, even though they're, they're fun gifts, but it's, it's more about knowing what we stand for and what we're trying to do hmm. and supporting that. Okay, I think it was quite interesting to talk about the concept of freedom and free society. But let us focus on the GNU project, which is the topic of this episode. So if you had only one minute, how would you describe the GNU project? I think basically the GNU project was set out to to create a fully free operating system that respects uh, computer user freedom. I think that's kind of the general gist of it. And, and largely they have succeeded with the inclusion of the kernel Linux in the early nineties, there was a, you know, a fully free operating system that can function on a general purpose computer. And I believe that's what the project was set out to do. And that's what it accomplished. So was the project founded in the early nineties or was it earlier? Uh, it was, yeah, it was much earlier. It was founded in 1983. And that's when the project set forth to create a fully free operating system. And they were working on their own kernel called Herd. And when the uh, Linux kernel was released under the uh, GNU General Public License version 2, that kind of completed the, the missing piece, so to speak. And then there was an operating system that you could apply to a general purpose computer. So the GNU project was started in around 1983, around the year of the GNU Manifesto. They define four freedoms, namely freedom zero to, to three, the freedom to run the software, the freedom to run the program as you wish for any purpose, the freedom to study how the program works and change it so it goes so it does your computing as you wish, the freedom to redistribute copies so you can help others, and the freedom to distribute copies of your modified versions to others. Were they I suppose those freedom the tech the exact text of those freedoms evolve over time or the the, the version in nine in the GNU manifesto in nineteen eighty three was pinpoint accurate or what happened to those freedom over time? And there may have been some adjustments early on, but I believe that they haven't changed. I kind of mentioned before their their simplicity. They're really kind of straight and to the point. You, know, you take like freedom zero says be able to run the program as you wish for any purpose. That's kind of an all encapsulating statement that just says run it for whatever purpose. So I, I don't think there was a lot of changes since they were I mean, maybe initially, but, you know, since they were kind of, yeah, I don't have a specific date in mind, but I think, yeah, they haven't changed over the years. Okay. 
as far as I know. And it kind of all coalesced to form the, the GNU licenses all as well, uh, those four freedoms. Yes, yes. I think we, we try to have a scientific public, people of, mm -hmm. in the field of science. How do you think those four freedoms apply to them? Or can we, how can we ensure that scientists produce code that respect those four freedoms? Well, I think for scientists, particularly the, using the free software, I, without being a scientist myself, I, I think it has a lot to do with being able to reproduce uh, experiments. If you don't know what the computer is doing, you certainly can't share that with other people, even if yourself, you know, you're, if you're not privy to how the, the program works. And I also think there's a, the free software kind of community kind of functions the way, maybe has functioned the way science does in the sense of like kind of standing on the shoulder of giants. Yeah. Where it's not, you know, these like even scientific achievements don't come out of a vacuum. They're, they're yeah. hundreds of years of work, you know, for, for a modern You know, that's obviously generalizing, but it's, yeah, it's so the, I think there's kind of overlap between the two, you know, free software and the, and science. Something kind of fun I did is come preparing for this, this talk is I, I took the four freedoms and I basically replaced the words programs and copies and computing with experiments. Mm. And so yeah. it would read like the freedom to run the experiment as you wish for any purpose, the freedom to study how the experiment works, you know, and so on. It wouldn't be that hard for people to do the same thing there and, and it, it really fit and i thought you know science freedom has a nice ring to it I don't <laughs> yeah but yeah there's definitely some overlap and mostly around the, the collaborative nature of, of free software and science in, in general yeah yeah there's a lot of overlap yeah and then you mentioned about how can a science ensure that their code if they do write code how it respects freedom and, and that would be of course to, to put it under a, a free software license particularly a copyleft free software license, which we will probably discuss what that means. Yeah. And that will increase the chances, that code's chance of being being free to everybody into the future. Mm -hmm. There's a side question, actually. Have you heard about the JSON license? Yes. Yeah. Because there's a kind of a moral conundrum about the freedom zero, which I think it's good by itself. But the JSON license says that this code should not be used for evil, which in turn like makes it non-free software by itself, just by the use of this term that it doesn't respect the ethos of free software. How do you resolve this uh, moral conundrum? Well, it, that is a, actually a very good question because it's one of the uh, current issues with free software uh, relating to the freedom zero to run it for any purpose. And I understand what people are trying to do, keep their program from being used for war, things of that nature. But that's kind of not how freedom works. Yeah. It's like free, you know, freedom of speech. You know, you can be talking with somebody and you can you'd say, I don't agree with what you're saying, but I will defend your right to say it, that concept. And one of the, the problems that an issue that's arising is this, uh, it's the issue of license proliferation. Because like JSON, there's other licenses out there that are trying to do the same thing, specifically around like not for commercial purposes. Yeah. That's a real popular one. There's one that was created. And if you go to the fsf.org website, and this will be in the show notes, we have a list of licenses that we approve or not approve. And so when we review a license, if you can't use it for any purpose, then it, it be, it's non-free. Mm-hmm. 
other examples. I think there was one out there called 996 was uh, protesting. There's a work regimen, I believe, in China where you work. Oh, wait, it's like work nine to nine, six days a week. And the license prohibited using it for that. Mm. It, it gets really specific. And then the problem is now all of a sudden you've got dozens and dozens of licenses that, that are like have th- three of the freedoms, but they just don't have that one. Yeah. And so it's considered an issue in the free software community that, that this is happening with license proliferation. And the fact also that over time, the definition of what it means of just taking the, the JSON license, do no evil, what is defined as evil? Yes. That, what is good, what is yeah. bad? Like there's kind of a blur in those lines. So it's not clear. Yeah, it's certainly not clear. And another thing to point out is, is although I like what they're trying to do, it's just the software license isn't the place to do it. Yeah. Because it then you get and you start getting into like the legal matters and, and lawyers, lawyer realm. And it's, yeah, how do you define evil? You know, how, how put, you know, imagine that in the court of law, <laughs> you know, we're, your honor, they clearly this is evil. You know, it, it's, yeah. So I, I just, I don't, I, like I said before, the freedom of speech thing is a good analogy. The main focus on this interview are the various GNU licenses. Before we dive into these, can you explain to our audience in three sentences what is the importance of selecting a license when you develop a software project? It was for this reason that I wanted to mention that my my introduction to free software about being focused on freedom and my my message to anyone anybody interested in in you know they want to license their code under a free software license, they should be attracted by the idea of doing it for freedom. And so if that is your goal is to defend freedom, it, I think the choice become, becomes a, little, a lot easier. Okay. And what about non-software projects? For example, if someone is writing a free book for his lecture notes or something, what kind of licenses are recommended for those projects? I, I did have one more thought on that last question Okay, yeah. is the, when it comes to the licenses, it's a legal document, but it also, it's a social contract, which kind of defines the community that is w- working on those programs. And so I think that's also an important key when you're thinking about the license you're going to choose is like what community is using that and do you share their values, things of that nature. Yeah. But as far as the non-software project, when I, I like to say, I mean, we, at the Free Software Foundation, we really try to just focus on the software and leave other things to, you know, other people that are doing something besides software. But there are licenses that we approve of that work for things like that under the GPL, but you might have trouble defining what source code means yeah. as you apply it to the license. So, so we actually recommend some of the licenses from the Creative Commons, the, particularly the Creative Commons by SA, which means that you you have to attribute the author and also you you share alike, which is a keeping the license. Yeah, it's a, it, that's, it's a type of copyleft. So copyleft is a it's not a r- real thing. It's more of a concept. Basically, it, it's considered a hack on the copyright law, because with copyright law, typically people use that to prevent other people from copying their works mm-hmm. with copy left it, it requires that you copy and share the works <laughs> and so that's what like a share like license with the creative commons would do is you you have to share it as you received it and 
when we talk about, you know, you receive certain freedoms and it's your, you have an obligation to share those freedoms the same way you receive them. And, and copyleft is a part of what, and I almost said enforces, but yeah, I guess enforces that through the, the license. Yeah, but sometimes the share, like, for example, when you're working on a scientific article and the even if you pay to have an open access version, having SA content in there can be troublesome because the when you're taking, for example, an, an image shared on a net license, mm -hmm. your text that integrates that, license, that image should also be licensed under SA. So it's... And sometimes the publishers do not allow for share-like licenses. So sometimes this clause could be a little bit troublesome in science or in scientific publication. That's what I find. Like the attribution is totally fine. Non-commercial, I could go with it. But share-like, sometimes it's problematic. Mm -hmm. Although I, it's not like I'm gonna strip the the copy, co Creative Commons license out of something that I'm I'm training I'm, I'm I'm using. But when you're writing a text and creating those pictures, it could be problematic. Yeah, the GNU project uh, provides four licenses: the GNU General Public License (GPL), the GNU Lesser General Public License (the LGPL), the GNU Afero General Public License (AGPL), and the GNU Free Documentation License, known as GFDL. Why so many licenses? What are the main difference between those? And can you briefly talk about those? Contrast them to help our listeners understand which one they should pick or uh, which licenses is right for the project? Oh, certainly. That's kind of the what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so each, in summary, each license was created to serve a particular purpose or, or solve a particular problem. So with if we go down the list, that there's the GNU General Public License, which is the standard strong copyleft license. And the LGPL is the lesser GNU public license. And what that is used for mostly is libraries where they can be integrated with even proprietary programs. And the intention behind this was for strategic purposes that you would want to get, if you have two libraries out there, one is, is free software and the other one isn't, and they, they do the same thing, that it, it's better for the free software movement to include the, the free library because it puts it out there and puts it into use. And then of course people can, you know, you can still share the source code of that library, but not the other pro not necessarily the other programs it interacts with, even though those other programs could be free software licenses and not necessarily non-free. And so the AGPL, is essentially the GNU general public license with an additional section that covers software that you would use over a network. According to the GPL, when you use a program over a network that isn't considered conveying, so it wouldn't trigger the, the supply source code requirement. But what the AGPL does is it says, if you're using this over a network, you also must supply the source code. Okay, for software as a services, for example? We like to say software is a service substitute or something. <laughs> uh, boy, I can't remember what it is. There's some kind of buzzy catchphrase thing. But yes, that, that's primarily what it's for. And it came a little later in, in the history of the GPL because the popularity of basically, quote unquote, services over a network were you know, 
started to become more and more of a thing. Mm. Yeah. Not much in the eighties. <laughs> yeah. Not much in the eighties. <laughs> yeah. And this kind of, it also kind of touches into the whole, not for commercial purposes. We talked about the, the freedom zero people trying to restrict that mm-hmm. and you know, with the AGPL, even though somebody is, you know, let's say they're a big company and they, they can kind of take advantage because they have the quantity of computing power. If your program is under the AGPL, you can, you know, you might not be able to compete with them, but you would at least be able to have access to the source code that they're using. Yeah. So for the, the GNU free documentation license, that basically was designed around GNU manuals, but it's not limited to textual works. Okay. Thanks for the brief explanation of these licenses. I think for our audience, it would be interested to do some use case study. So I just have two use cases in mind. So one could be, for example, one finished his master thesis or PhD thesis, and he developed some software. And mostly people leave the lab and this software vanishes or is at some server or is lost. So what GNU license would you recommend if some students want to publish the product of his thesis? Well, there, there's a couple of things going on there. And first, I got to say, I'm, I'm not a lawyer and this is not legal advice for your listeners. Just got to... Not that anybody would assume that, but just want to make that clear. So if they've created a program and they just, they want to, they've decided they want to make it free software. I guess you'd have to look closer at what it does. If the program, you know, being a license, you might want to, not, not a license, sorry, a library. You might want to choose the LGPL. You'd want to consider, is it, is it a program that, that functions over a network? So you want to choose the AGPL. We actually have on, on our website a, a kind of a walkthrough for this sort of thing. Okay. So we can probably put a link to this walkthrough to the show notes. Yeah. But that's, yeah, it's kind of determining what the, you know, once you've, if you've decided that you want the software to be, you know, enjoy freedom, software freedom, I think those would be the big determinants, whether it's a library, whether it's something to be accessed over a network or, yeah, for it's just a standalone program. Okay. And the second use case would be because I hear it often that researchers or students want to publish a library, but on the other side, there's the university administration and you have to ask for permission. And these guys always want to know if someone could make money out of this library. But I think here we have two different points that the university wants to make money. The researchers want to share their work so others can use it. So... Is there any license could handle these two things or is it impossible or what would you recommend for this case? Well, again, I'm not a lawyer and, and I would note if it's, if you are dealing with something that, that looks like it could become successful or, you know, bigger than where it's starting from, I, I would definitely recommend le- seeking out legal counsel. One option that is available with a university is you can get the university to, to sign a disclaimer. My experience with that is it, it seems to vary. Some schools are open about saying, yeah, we don't claim anything of our students, but some of them are really looking to capitalize on the work of their students. So if you're enrolled in a university, there's going to be policies in place that, that you, you're going to somewhere along the line sign your name to. And it, it would hurt, wouldn't hurt to just, well, it would help to read through those. And, and see what's going on there. And if it's possible to get them to sign a disclaimer. This actually comes up quite a bit with the GNU project. So when, if somebody wishes to contribute to GNU, 
we currently use copyright assignment where the contributor assigns their copyright to the FSF and, and we promise to defend it for software freedom. And if they're employed to program or if they're a student, even if they're not a computer science student, we have them that we need them to get a disclaimer from their university saying, basically saying that this is, we're disclaiming, just this is the, the work of this person is not ours. And, you know, there's a lot of fine legal language in there, but basically, yeah, it just says that we acknowledge this is not our software and you can, we won't mess around with it. Same with the employer uh, disclaimer where the employer goes, yeah, we employ this person to do programming, but they contribute to the GNU project on their own time with their own equipment. And so we don't have any claim over the, over that work. So if there was a, I think that situation would also apply to, to the question is if they're trying to release a thesis under a free software license and they wrote it, they would want to either get the university to disclaim it or find out if the university has a policy that they don't claim the work of their students. We can see that the, we'll go back to the license a bit more. The GPL is available both as version two and version three, which are slightly different. What are the difference between version two and version three of the G GPL and are they compatible with each other's? Okay. So version two was originally released in, in 1991 and the version three was released in 2007. The differences um, between them, I'll just kind of rat rattle these off. And if you have any more specific questions about them, we, we can certainly get into it. So when they decided to write the version three of the GPL, it started, I believe, in January of 2006. And it was a, a public process where everybody could, you know, weigh in. And the outcome was a result of that collaboration. And a lot of the things included in GPL three were put in there to counteract changes in the world when it comes to you know, free software and how, how it's intended to survive. And so some of the things that were included in the GPL three that were, that are not as present in the, the version two with GPL three, it, it, it explicitly protects users from lockdown devices. So in, in GPL version two, it, it does require installation scripts to be provided. Okay, I think this was caused by a company called Tifo that was making a TV box that contained GPL code, but that would not release a source code. Was it something like that? That's correct. Yeah, the Tivoization was a was I believe a term that the FSF coined. It, it's a little dated. I don't know if kids know what Tivo is anymore. I don't. I'm not a kid, but I, I don't. But I, I'm not in in the USA, but <laughs> I don't. But, but yes. But essentially that's what it was, is the, they were able to put the software on there in a way that it was kind of locked in there and you couldn't, you couldn't adjust it or apply your own version to the device. And so all the GPL does is just, it was, it made it more clearly defined what that means is when it comes to like being able to install it and having encryption keys and things of that nature. GPL, the version three also included a section seven, which has the opportunity to apply additional permissions, which makes GPL v3 licensed software more compatible with other software that's out there. There was an increased protection for, against patents in version three versus version two. The GPL v2 had an implied patent grant, but the v3 makes the patent grant a little more explicit. Another thing that changed in version three was the restoration rights. So if you violate the license with version two, your 
the termination is immediate and you have to get forgiveness, you know, before you can start distributing again, you have to get forgiveness from all the copyright holders. Uh, with version three, there's kind of a 30 day grace period that if you can resolve your violation and within that time, it's just your rights are automatically restored. So it kind of made compliance a little easier. Yeah. That clause is a bit, it, it could be really hard. Yes. Yeah. Well, especially if you've already begun distribution and you've got your products all over the planet. Yeah. I'm just thinking of projects such as like Lin the Linux kernel, <laughs> the size of how many contributors there is in that project. Like how could you even get the, did it an acknowledgement for everyone? Yeah, yes, that's it, it's one of the challenges for sure. The other part of the question is ask if they are compatible with each other, and technically they are not because they are both copyleft licenses. And as kind of mentioned before, what copyleft does it requires you to redistribute under that license, so there, there would be a conflict there. But isn't there a way like to license under GPL two plus or there's some trick like that you can do? That was my my next thought was <laughs> to be or late or or later function. But I wanted to say that even though the you can't combine GPL v2 and v3 programs, but they certainly can sit side by side with each other in an operating system. It's not there's nothing that prohibits that you just can't can't combine the combine that code or so the or later option, this isn't, it's not a different type of license, but it's a way of saying that if the license does change, that you can use an or later version. So if there's a GPL V2 or later license program out there, you could take that and combine it with the GPL V3 work under the GPL V3. And eventually GPL V4, if it exists at one point in time. That's correct. Yes. And is it possible for a project to switch from GPL v2 to GPL v3, or what does it involve to change the license of a project? Well, the, the license is determined by the author. And an, so if you wanted to go from a v3 to, or v2 to v3, you would have to get the approval of all the authors, which I under, from what I understand with the kernel Linux is one of the problems of the sheer number of, of contributors. Yeah that you'd have to go to each and every one to get them to say, yes, I, I'm going to release my software under version three. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you, if, if they're still all alive, <laughs> there's yes. still, some people might not be alive to answer anymore. And uh, yes. we, can, we can't do much at that point. And yeah, but if, if it's a smaller project, as a sol solo author, you can change it easily, but a uh, larger project, I understand it's quite, could be troublesome. Yes, yeah, that's this is true. The four freedoms guaranteed by licenses from the GNU family are generally considered as freedoms for the users and are seen by some developers as restrictions. Meanwhile, MIT or BSD style licenses are kind of the opposite, where some developers say that they feel less restriction by those licenses, but they leave less liberty to the end users. What is your opinion on that? It's kind of funny because this that particular question comes up in conversation from time to time, especially with developers. And and I, my personal take is I'd I'd like them to consider the the implications of freedom in the aforementioned free you know free isn't freedom aspect of it. And so if you're going to release code into the world, do you want it to, to respect people's freedom? 
and and I and I, although I see the the rationale behind it, it, it it's sort of a, a false division because developers are also users, and if they use proprietary software, then they're often interacting with free software that's trapped inside it, and that's what you might get with a what you call permissive license, like the we we call it the expat. A lot of people call it the MIT license, even though MIT has many licenses for all kinds of manner of things. But yeah, I just kind of. I just kind of feel it's a, you know, it's, it might be a shortcut for convenience because it certainly is easy and you don't have to worry about what anybody's doing with your code, but it also, it's a, it's a trade-off with the potential loss of freedom to future users of your software. So, and also, oh, I was going to say there is the, our official stance at the FSS that we're not opposed to those licenses, especially for smaller kind of insignificant, not insignificant, but smaller code <laughs> files. All, all code files are significant, but for, for like a smaller code file, we we're fine with a permissive license like that, whereas it's not as, as, as crucial. How do you assign a license or a new license to a project? Is there specific files you need to attach to a project? Do you need to register it to someplace or how do you apply a new license? Oh, certainly. And this is another one of those we have a, that'd be in the show notes how to apply GNU to your program. Essentially, the major piece is to have a copy of the license in the main directory of the program. That should be enough to cover it, but outside of that, you want to make sure that, that your program files have copyright notices. And that's useful if, if when people, future people are using their code, that they're, they're very clear on which code file, who's the author, who does it belong, you know, what license is it under. So essentially, yeah, you would add the, the copying file and then if you wanted to, for example, use the or later option, you might describe that in a readme file. And then there's other things like, you know, make the program display a, a notice at startup. That's an option. But as far as legal legality goes, I guess it would be the license file and then the, the readme saying that this program is licensed under, yeah, under the GPL. And then as far as, so it, it's, we're dealing with copyright. So if, you know, you wanted to, to go a step further, you would register that with the, the U.S., the, the Copyright Office. I, I think that makes it, that's a necessary step if you want it to, to take an issue into court. Okay. Have, haven't come into that. Yeah, I've never heard of program registering themselves as being licensed as GPL. If I include a GPL library in my project, do I have to put the, so, uh, the license file as well, or is it just enough if I mention it somewhere? So the GPL license and, and some other license, I, I want to say the Apache 2.0 requires that a copy of the license come with the source code. So you, you would include a copy of the license with the source code. Yes, it, it, would, be a, it, it would be a requirement. It is a requirement of the license to include a copy of the license, yes. Okay. Or a LGPL piece of code used as a library in a bigger software, you would have to have the LGPL within the, the, the source code of that library? Yes, that's correct. Okay. Let us talk about some common myth about the GNU license and discuss if they are true or false. Okay. The one of myth that we're starting with is all GNU licenses are contagious. Including a project license under a GNU license as a dependency forces your project to be licensed under the same GNU license. In a nutshell, yeah, that, that is true. But, but my personal feelings on it is what is contagious and what is spreading is user freedom. And I'm not seeing a downside to that. I also kind of, I think there's a famous quote from a certain 
CEO of a big company that, that may have started that <laughs> without naming names. Yeah. And at the time, I, I, I can see where it was a threat to their business model. And I can see why they would say that. But from my point of view, it really is if you're spreading freedom, then yeah, it's contagious. And I hope it keeps spreading. Yeah. The problem with that phrasing is that sometimes some people use the word contagious and contagious have a bad reputation as a word. It's not rarely as positive connotation. Yeah. So. No, I understand. Yeah. it's. I don't like the word contagious in that f phrase. <laughs> yes. Another myth, it is impossible to monetize a software product based on a GNU license. We actually encourage people to try to sell copies. It's one of those, I, I wouldn't say a myth, but more of a misunderstanding of surrounding the word free. Free is in freedom, not as in free beer is the famous quote. And I think when people hear free software, they think, oh, I can't charge for that, but you certainly can. Back in the days, the FSF used to sell tapes. You know, they send people send money and they, we would ship a copy of free software on tape through the post. Other thoughts come to mind. So Red Hat is a company, they sold themselves to IBM for $34 billion. That seems like a lot of money for free software. <laughs> yeah. Next Cloud is doing pretty well and their product is fully, you know, free software. It's not under, I don't think, I think, I can't remember what licenses they use, but I know, I know it's we consider it free software. Yeah. So it's, yeah, we, you, people do it all the time. And then there's definitely uh, some particular business models that, that are available that you can profit from free software. And even the audio workstation we're using for recording, it is released under GPL, I think V2. And the source code is available for anyone to take. But if you want a pre-compiled binary for Windows or Mac, you have to pay a certain fee to get access to the pre-compiled binary. Otherwise, you can take the source code and compile the software as you want. Oh, interesting. That's another model. Yeah, yeah. Now that works. And I think a lot of some of the examples that keep coming to mind is mostly around services. The software exists, but you're really paying for support or you want uh, customization. Those are certainly places to you know charge and, and profit from. Expertise, yeah. Another myth. If you're using services from a company that is using software released under the GPL, they are obliged to provide you the source code when you request it. Yeah, this is kind of, I think we touched on this a little bit earlier, but this is where the AGPL comes in. So under the GPL version two, if you have a program running on a server that somebody is accessing remotely, that is not considered conveying and it doesn't trigger the, the requirements of providing the source code. So that, that is, it, it's true. And, and But that is why we have the AGPL. Yeah. And that caused a lot of problem with big tech companies such as Amazon and Google using GPL code and not giving back modification they may bring to those GPL programs because they don't distribute them. Yes. And that's um, actually kind of this reminded me back with the question about choosing a license for your work. If you're writing a program and you don't intend it, to be used over a network, there's always a chance that it might be. And so the AGPL might be an advantage to, to choose just in case your program starts getting used as a, over a network. Yeah, you're right. It's a, just something to consider. 
Okay, I think we are done with the new project and the new licenses, and now we like to switch to a slightly lighter topic. So we always ask our interviewees, what is your vision about FLOSS and its importance for the openness of science? I feel like I you know, go back to the reproducibility of experiments, and then my other thought would be uh, collaboration. I'm picturing two scientists on either side of the globe trying to communicate with each other while there's a, a proprietary gatekeeper in the middle <laughs> that could potentially be spying on what they're doing. So I just think the general necessity for privacy is important for science. Yeah. And there's a lot of parallels to be made from the early computing period where the source code had to be compiled on each each specific system because the architecture were always different. Having the source code under in science is a big unificator, like a big leveling the playing field. Yeah. And, I, and then another another thought that, that came to mind, I feel like I would have mentioned this in maybe in the introduction, but the there's a phrase that the privacy is impossible with, without free software, which is true. And I know that I normally don't like to speak in absolutes like that, but it, it is certainly is true because if you don't control, if you if it's not free software, you don't control the device, you have no way of knowing what it's doing. Yeah. And certainly you can say, yes, I trust, you know, Corporation X to protect my privacy, but that's that's like that's privacy brought to you by Corporation X. It's not <laughs> privacy brought to you by human rights, you yeah. know. That's wishful thinking at some point. Yes, it, it is a little bit. And from the other perspective, do you think that using FLOSS can have negative impacts on science or society? I, I don't think so. I'm trying to think of any possible scenario where, where more freedom would be bad. Yeah, I'm, I'm just going to say no. We're almost done with the interview, and we will proceed with some of our classic quick questions. What is your favorite text processing tool? Well, I'm, a, I'm an Emacs. I'm in Camp Emacs. <laughs> classic. <laughs> uh, Yes, yes, of course. But I, I certainly, I know how to use VI due to, you know, its portability. So it, I'm not entrenched in either camps, you know, to teach their own kind of thing. But I'm as far as like the Vim versus Emacs, I am definitely an Emacs person. Is there anything else we forgot to ask you about that we should have known to ask you? Or anything else you would like to share with us? Not that I can think of, just like to reiterate the concept of freedom. When it comes to software, and, and I, you know, this is firmly in contrast to the open source, where, as you probably know, they're effectively the same thing. There, there really is no difference between you know, free software and, and open source software, but it's just that the open source software has dropped the conversation about freedom. And as I kind of mentioned before, it's really important. And one of the things that helped me uh, kind of get on board with free software is before I learned about free software is I, I wanted to talk to people about freedom and not the you know most engaging subject, even though it's important if you kind of look, look outside your window. And, and I found free software to kind of be that vehicle to have those more important conversations where you're, you're talking about code and you're saying word freedom. And it's like, oh, by the way, what, what does freedom mean to you? You know, like it, it just kind of opens that up for that conversation where with open source software, you're, you're just, there's no opportunity. You're just yeah. talking about developing and, and collaborating. Mm -hmm. The procedure, not the rhetoric or the morale behind it. Yeah. The ethical decision. Yeah, exactly. Thank you, Craig, for your time and this interview. If any of our listeners wants to reach you, how would you like them to contact you? 
they can email me. It's Craig T at FSF.org. That's C-R-A-I-G-T at FSF.org. And also I would encourage anybody to email licensing at FSF.org. I'd also like to invite folks, if you're interested in free software licensing and like to learn more about it, maybe in like a hands-on kind of way, every Friday from noon to three Eastern Daylight Time, we host a, a free software directory meeting on a free node, IRC free node channel, pound sign FSF. You know, we go in there and we basically approve programs for the free software directory and we'll show you how to do it, how to look at source code and identify the licenses and copyright, you know, notices on the files and find out if there's, you know, proprietary software in there. It's a really good opportunity for people to kind of do the hands-on portion of things.